here we go. This is Happening with Mark Zito and Ryan Sampson. I'm Mark Zito. I'm Ryan Sampson. And this is Happening. Here with you guys on a, uh, hearing this on a Thursday. Yeah. Welcome aboard. I, I just, Mark, I, before we get going, I know we, this is something totally different that we didn't even talk about off air. Okay. But, but it just crossed my mind. Yes. And the last, the last email you sent me. Mm-hmm. Um, was a potential guest, yeah. and I don't, I'm not going to mention that. If you want, if you, if we can mention a name, you mention the game. But I kind of want to know how serious you were, and well, and how good of an idea you think it is, and that is a totally objective question. Okay, um, the guest you can you can say who the guest is. I don't uh, care. Former Attorney General of the United States, William Barr. Yes, uh, the guy who looks like the baby from Dinosaurs. I. Uh, you. I only sent it to you because you asked me to send you all the potential guest availables. Okay, but the thing is, is that when 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 all when you send me all the guest availables, and this is some pull back the curtain velvet rope yeah, yeah. behind the scene shit. It's usually a list of like ten people, and it's mixed. It's it's um you know um. Zachary Quinto has a new TV show. Uh, James Patterson has a new book, and uh, Ann Coulter is—I don't know—mad about something. Yeah, right. And and it's just—I <laughs> like—I like how you're letting people think that Ann Coulter literally does press and says, "I'm angry. Talk to me." That's not what happens. She has a book or something out normally. But yeah, it's it's a hodgepodge of celebrities and people you know of that from from very famous to not famous at all, promoting a variety of different projects. Mm-hmm. So when you sent me just one name, yeah, and it's a very infamous name, yeah. I wasn't sure whether it was an implicit suggestion or one that just came up solo and and you're just sending it out. Uh, well, because... I mean, I did look at it. There are other solo ones that come up where I'm just like, no, we're not doing that. Uh, don't right. send them. But this one, I thought, well, that would be weird. But, We'd have to behave ourselves, but but I think that you and I could do like it would be a challenge for you and I, because I think we could do a substantive. I can't even say the word serious interview. Yeah, but we've talked about this before, where I have, a, and we have a guest today that I'm excited to have, uh, Michael Schur, who is nothing like uh, Attorney General Barr, <laughs> and uh, for his book <laughs> How to Be Perfect: The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question, but. The the thing with with me is I end up being very complimentary of the guest and their projects, no matter who it is, right? Right. Pretty much all the time. And you do lots of research. Like, like you would do the Bill Barr deep dive, and you're like, oh, my God, did you know in law school he did this, Ryan? And I'd be like, no. So – so the thing, the thing, the problem is we've talked about this like when Donald Trump Jr. was available one time and uh-huh. also Tucker Carlson. We could have been in Tiger King too. Yeah, exactly. But the thing with, with, with Donald Trump Jr. is even if they gave him to us, people know what our show's about a little bit. We'd have to make promises to be nice. I don't want to do that. I don't like him. He's a douchebag. So me like pandering. I remember saying like I remember saying me having to pander to somebody just so I can end up as a blurb and slate is not what I want. And and it's the, yeah, but you would just have to tell him a, a douchebag. You had telling me he's a douchebag in a refined, smart way. Yeah, I don't want to fuck with that. I don't care. Like I feel like it's a little out of my. 
Like, like Depth. Tucker Carlson. We talked also one time when Tucker Carlson was given as an available. I was like, hey, if we could get Tucker Carlson, wouldn't it be good for the show if we just had him on? And I was like, hey, Tucker, why are you a dick? Like, like just, just, but then, like, if I wouldn't get fired internally, right? Because technically, I think, you know, Sirius XM airs Fox News and Fox Headlines or whatever the, these news channels we have. I, and it's, I th- and it, yeah. I thought, that would be good press for the show, <laughs> but is it worth it? No. I mean, the the all press is good press is not always true. So with William Barr, I mainly just thought, huh, that would be weird. I don't know what I would talk right. to him about. Also, I, I wasn't sh- I wasn't sure if you like really are like, hey Ryan, we should we should think about like having him on and doing and doing a deep dive. And I'm like, wow, that that's. Yeah, he's got it's a different for us. What is the book called? Because I remember, oh, one damn one thing, damn after, thing another. after another. Is that some shit he said or something? I never remember him saying it, but it's it's. I guess they're they're trying to be edgy by using cursing cursing. Light. Am I supposed to feel you know almost bad for this man? Like wow, one thing after another for poor Willie Barr. It was so hard to be Attorney General for Bush <laughs> and then Donald Trump. It's almost like I mean he couldn't have possibly just resigned at any time. He had to do it. He had to wait until the last possible minute when they were literally storming the door to resign. Oh, fuck him. I don't want to have him on. Also, yeah, I, can I be honest? I don't even think he's important enough to bother. Like, I, if it was, if you were telling me, all right, we can have Mike Pence on, I'd be like, okay, that's interesting. I'll do that. Well, I mean, people do say that, like, if 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 a big chunk is going to come out of the Trump dam, that it's going to be Bill Barr when this book happens. That he's like holding back. Um, a whole shit ton of like, because he did quit before January sixth, and he has not been one of the people that has has um gone along with the big lie or anything like that. And a lot of people say that he's waiting to unleash this book. Yeah, it, well, a, a lot of people here. If that's the case, fuck him even more. I I don't for not I, doing something about it when he was there. Yes. Yeah. I don't. I don't like this. This weird thing we have in government, where it's like, okay, uh, now that I can make money on the book, let me tell you what happened. It's like, yo, fuckface, why weren't you handling this when it was happening? Yeah, when that you was were your there. actual job. Uh-huh. I don't want to hear that you sat idly by, or you know, I said to him, strong with no, with no uh, room for interpretation. I told him I did not like it, and then we did it anyway. <laughs> okay, what? I don't want right. to hear this shit. I'm with you. Uh, okay. That's fair. I just when when I saw it, you can understand why I would have been like. Do you want to have him on? I, I I feel no. I I no. I'm this isn't this isn't a plea to be like yo. We should have Bill Barr on. Okay, great. No. What I also love about this is we're talking about it. Like if we said yes, we want him, they would say one hundred percent. You're getting him definitively. <laughs> Uh, not what happens yeah i'm sure that was also part of me it's like it was sort of like a wait they'd really they 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 not not only serious xm but bill barr's people would be like yeah you know yeah this is happening do you think i guess i i wonder what level of guest you have to have on where they do do research on you beforehand i think it depends on i mean like how well staffed you are mm-hmm from what I from from what I've heard of Bill Barr, I don't think I don't think he'd be the one to be doing the staffing. I get that. So we could we could get away with it. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Welcome to the Lib Show, Bill Barr. How are you? I would just I'll be honest. I would probably just pussy out. 
I'd probably just be like, okay, I know, I know. We, we literally... It's it's not pussying out. Like, that's the thing is, as I do, tr- like, I don't think we should have them on and own them. But, but I think that, I think Why? that if, say, we did, that, that, like, we should ask, you know, like, it, it, we, uh, what's the right, saying what you're saying would be, we ask no tough questions. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I don't, I'll be honest, I, I'd, I'd, I'd have to research, I'd have to prepare for this interview in a completely different way, and I just don't want to. Like, I think that we would, we, we could, we could be respectful and ask tough questions. So do you want to say we want to do it or no? No. Okay. No. All right. Good can God. we talk about can we talk about something that is is top of my list today? Yes. Cooperstown, New York, the Baseball Hall of Fame. I've, I've also been there. been there. Yeah. Did you go to the Hall of Fame? I went to I did, but the Hall of Fame was closed when I was there. So would you go to like Doubleday Field or whatever it's called? Yeah, I was at a game. It was an Oriole game that was at Doubleday Field. Nice. Yeah. So as you may have seen in the news yesterday, David Ortiz, I believe, was the lone player elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And in their final years of eligibility, Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds not. Oh, wait, excuse me. There are seven members in the Hall of Fame. What? I was going to say, yeah, like only one. That's odd, isn't it? Sorry. OK, no, no, no. Well, he he was the only person that was put in by the ballot. There's also the. Golden days and early baseball era committees of Jim Cat, Tony Olivia, and the late Bud Fowler, Gil Hodges, Minnie Minoso, and Buck O'Neill. But the the modern day. So a bunch is, of people from the forties and fifties. I have no idea. I have no clue. But David Ortiz going into the Hall of Fame. But I think the bigger story. And I love Big Poppy. I'm a Red Sox fan. But I think the bigger story is that Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling, even. If you want to talk about Bill Barr types we could have on the show, are not. And that seems bullshit to me. Why? Because it's a it's it's the history of the game. How are you going to have those guys in without the history of the game? How are you going to have a a, a, a a building that's here's the fucking history of baseball and not have those dudes in? No, can you help me? And I, I this this is a serious question. Because you know, like, I am not the the diehard. This is where, when I said that you were a diehard sports fan and I'm a casual sports fan, this is where I think that that line is drawn. Because I'm going to ask this question and I know you know the answer. All right. And I have have forgotten. Okay. Uh, Individually, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, just because we're talking about them. The end was the end of their career due to some administrative action or were they, did they peacefully retire? Clemens retired. If I recall, now Bonds did retire, but it was bullshit. It was was it was it? You're suspended. No, I retire. No, no. But you was, get you get yes, what I'm saying. I get what you're saying, and it wasn't that. Yeah. If anything, it was frigging collusion. He he was one of the top hitters, even at 43 years old. He became a free agent, and all of a sudden, literally none of the teams offered him a contract. None of them. You could argue. I mean, it's not the same thing as far as the social the social justice thing, but he got Kaepernicked. Yeah. Well, before it was before you could get Kaepernicked. Okay, so Kaepernick got bonzed. I mean, I guess I don't know. I don't I like like all the teams saw trouble a, a a guy that doesn't follow the rules and a cheater who's going to hang a black cloud over oh, there. Fuck that! A cheater, dude. Everyone was doing it. Then. Doesn't mean everyone's not a cheater. That's fine, 
But if you're talking about who's going to be in the Hall of Fame, you can't be like, well, we're going to let some of the cheaters in. Well, who got caught? Have they been letting cheaters that got caught in? You're telling me. And I'm asking seriously. I don't know. Are they letting cheaters who didn't get caught, are they letting them in? Do you think? I don't know if they got caught. But you, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, but do you think that there's no uh, cheaters in the Baseball Hall of Fame? Of course. But what I'm trying to say is, like, you're saying you're saying everyone was doing it. And my sort of thing is, like, well, that's, you know, if you're doing something, the consequences of getting caught happen. And yes. I guess, like, like the concept, like, like it's what in baseball, it's not like Roger Clemens or Barry Bonds hurt after their career because they were labeled a cheater. But the consequence was that that they're not going to be recognized as a great player. Uh, they're legendary. This is a, this is from Bleacher Report. Mickey Mantle, Hall of Famer, missed the end of the 1961 season because of an infection from an injection site of. Guess what he was injecting in 1961. Uh, it was steroids, switch. Ryan. It was steroids. Okay. okay. So, you know, uh, it, it just comes down to, you think pitchers were putting weird shit on the balls and all that? Of, to make of course it- they were. No, no, no. That's Of course they were. But 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 it, when Mickey Mantle was injecting himself with steroids, had the league banned them? They hadn't banned him when fucking Mark McGuire was doing it. Mm. Oh, that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? It does, yeah. That's what I'm saying. If anything, you have Bud Selig, who was the commissioner of baseball when all this was going on, right? He was the commissioner of baseball. He looked the other way because Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire in 1998 made people interested again, right? With their home run chase. And he is in the Hall of Fame for overseeing this bullshit You know that now these guys can't get in. He looked the other way. And you want to tell me they didn't know? I don't believe that. You're calling him the Pope of Baseball. I am. I am. When did steroids steroids become illegal in baseball? Oh, excuse me. Hold on. All right. <laughs> steroids, according to Wikipedia. While you looked that up, I, I was thinking the other day is is sort of like they should do a compromise that, that all these players would absolutely hate, right? And it's it, it'd be the shittiest compromise in the world, but it would get them into the Hall of Fame in some way, but also still cover the bases, not to be a pun. But what if they what if they took a little corner of Cooperstown, right, and they made a, an exhibit of steroids in baseball, and they put all of these players who were kept out of the Hall of Fame in the steroids and baseball in the Hall of Fame exhibit? I mean, I'd be fine with that. I think it's fine. Steroids in baseball apparently became illegal uh, in 1991. They were on the banned substance list, but they didn't start testing for them until 2003. So that way, okay, so it was banned. So Mark McGuire was a rookie in 87 or 88. Yep. So by the time he started hitting all his home runs, because Mark McGuire, when steroids became a banned substance, was still a pretty mediocre player. I mean, he was good, but he wasn't the Mark McGuire. The reason he's he wasn't remembered. mediocre, he hit like fifty home runs his, his rookie year. Did he? Yeah, but that's when people were hitting seventy. No, it wasn't. This is why I can't have these discussions with you. 
I was I was a kid. I remember people hitting I home runs all the time. I wasn't even fucking born. I know what I'm trying to say is that is that Mark McGuire's early career, like like he he was a hot rookie. What I remember, and tell me maybe I'm fucking wrong, but I remember him starting as a hot rookie and then going through some like eh, years, and then all of a sudden blowing up and just every ball got hit out of the park. Here's here's what it here's what it here's here's what you need to know. During the 1990s, there was you know a lot of home runs hit. Three players reached the the 50 home run mark in any season between 1991, excuse me, 1961 and 1994. Somebody okay. hit 50 home runs three times. Then it started going nuts, yeah. right? But if you're having a, what I'm telling you is if you have a Hall of Fame dedicated to the history of baseball, how do you not have these dudes in? Because baseball's running the the show and they get to project what they want to project. This isn't an objective Hall of Fame. If this isn't a third party Hall of Fame. There's there's no other scenario where we where you because you seem to be fine with this. I'm fine with it. There's no other scenario where you would be okay with this. If I told you, hey, there's a classroom in the South and they say that slavery never happened. That dude, that's not that's that's you're There's a museum. Of, you know, in the no, South. no, no. You're no, no. You're talking about the oppression of millions of people. Oh, don't make it. Comp- don't make it, it that fucking serious. What I'm telling it is, you is, it's the oppression. No, it is. It's the oppressions of millions of people versus three people being greedy and cheating. Okay. First of all, it's it's more than three people, and also what I'm more telling you is they're not giving you the full picture of what happened. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. They, don't equate them. So just so in 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 like fifty years they're gonna make movies about him, you know, and and he's gonna be the they're gonna be these guys are gonna be the new shoeless Joe. I just don't think there's a good case to not have them in the Hall of Fame. I I do. They cheated. They knowingly. It's not like they accidentally cheated. Okay. It's not. So like, what you're really saying is, if you get caught, you can't be in the Hall of Fame. Well, yeah. So you well you said they knowingly cheated. Yeah. But they you don't knew think that, anyone else in the Hall this of was Fame a, knowingly cheated? It well, listen, if you if we're if this becomes if this comes to light that you knowingly cheated, you shouldn't be there. And if, if somebody else wants to open up a third party hall like, you know, museum hall of fame. I don't even know if Mark McGuire Mark McGuire admitted steroid use in 2010. He'd already been retired for years. I don't even think... And here's the other thing. They, they, there was a voluntary test where these guys tested pot. Like, like, they were trying to clean up the game and everyone was working with them and now they're being penalized for it. I just think it's crazy. I just think to act like all these other dudes in the Hall of Fame... Because like, here's what they're doing. They're using a fucking moral superiority here. They're saying those guys are cheaters. Everyone in the Hall of Fame was a good person and didn't cheat. Bullshit. We know for a fact. No, what you're saying is, is that officer, everyone else here was speeding. Why are you giving me a ticket? There's some element of truth to that. Officer, everyone on this highway is speeding. Why am I getting the ticket? No, no, not taking the ticket. That's all it is, dude. Of course, everyone on the highway is speeding. But you can't tell the officer, everyone on this highway is speeding, you're getting the ticket. You got caught, there's fucking nothing you can do about it. It's not like you were accidentally going 85. Gaylord Perry in the Hall of Fame 
wrote in his autobiography, before he was elected to the Hall of Fame, I'd always have grease in at least two places in case the umpires would ask me to wipe one off. I never want to be caught out there with anything, though. It wouldn't be professional. Whitey Ford admitted cheating. Hank Greenberg discussed how, he, how stealing signs helped him. All these people in the Hall of Fame. So you, But again, so, you, so what you're saying is... You're saying these the, people the, the shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame every, because they're officer, cheaters. Officer, everyone, everyone on the highway is speeding. I don't. I shouldn't get a ticket. So what's your argument against? Like we should kick those other people out of the Hall of Fame? I mean, listen, I'm not opposed to kicking some people out of the Hall of Fame, but it's one of those things that, yeah, life isn't 100% perfectly fair. Everyone on the highway is cheat is speeding. Some people get tickets. And that's just the way. Like, like bitching about that is 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 craziness. Pissing in the rain, pissing into the wind. I mean, it's it's it, it's not it's not dealing with the reality of the way the world works. You cheated. You knowingly cheated. There are consequences for that. I just, everyone on the highway is speeding. Some people get tickets. Some people don't. I just think just the, be. You I, can't be a sovereign citizen. The baseball hall You're, of fames own message is that their mission is to preserve history which is what we seek to do throughout the museum how is this is a huge part of baseball history i understand and listen all i'm trying to say is i'm sort of making this up but you're going to get the point the california highway patrol slogan should could be keeping the highways safe just because they don't do a hundred percent job doesn't mean their slogan is less valid I just think this is this is particularly bullshit because it's not like anyone it's not like everyone was shocked when we found out these players were on steroids. And it's not like they're shocked that that when they find out they're cheating there's penalties. Like like that's the that's the other end. Like I this is this is just like oh, listen, you shouldn't you sh- you're allowed to cheat. Go ahead cheat. It's fine. We don't care. I just don't understand how you can have a monument to baseball, right? A monument to the game of baseball and not have Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa. And, and, and let me ask you this. I don't know why Kurt Schilling's not in. He wasn't tied to any PED use. He just got really hardcore Republican and got kind of shitty as like a human being. What's uh-huh. the excuse there? Ty Cobb. I, I know. No, I'm not going to comment. I know nothing. Well, I'm about just it. saying. I don't understand what the problem. Ty Cobb literally tried to beat the shit out of a black groundskeeper one time because he tried to shake his hand. He's in the Hall of Fame. Kurt Schilling's a pretty bad dude now, but I don't think he's doing anything like that. Officer, everyone on the highway is speeding. Why do I get the ticket? It's different. That's different. No, that it's, it's no. It's he didn't no, do listen, any cheating. I get, I, is it a hundred percent fair? No, like, yeah, you're right. It sucks, but, 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 like, I don't know what else to say. Like, you should, in cases where you can enforce, you should enforce. I'm not, I'm not for, like, I'm not sticking up for any of these people well, you I'm, say are bad. I'm unclear. I'm just saying. Why? I'm just. You would, you would, Kurt Schilling would need to be enforced. I don't, I, like, I know nothing about the, I know nothing about Kurt Schilling. I know nothing. I can't speak to that. I know nothing. Yeah. I'm sure that there are plenty of people that deserve to be in the Hall of Fame that never cheated that aren't there too. I'm not well versed enough in baseball. I don't know if there are. I don't. I don't know if that's. A well, thing. I bet you that if you want to go pre 1940s. 
Well, I mean, you could. We've always talked about how you can make the argument that like Babe Ruth never played against African American players. That's pretty. exactly what I was saying. But anyway, enough baseball talk. I'm sure we'll we'll touch on the moralities. <laughs> Um, Dude, it's just I I get it, but but to me, like this isn't something to bitch about. This is this is everyone on the highway speeding. Why do I get a ticket? I like, think you, it's something. But you got the you got the arguably one of the greatest hitters of all time, and he's not in the in the Hall of Fame. Barry Bonds. I I think it's arguably like, is the right word. You you very the problem is, is that there's a very way. strong argument that his hitting was because he was cheating. No, no, I think his his longevity maybe. But even before he was accused of, of doing steroids, he was phenomenal. But there are people that there is no argument. Sure. But I would say, that's why I said, I, I think he's better than 90% of the hitters in the Hall of Fame. That being said, coming up right now, the creator of The Good Place, uh, creator, I believe, of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, involved in a lot of TV. Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec. Michael Schur has a new book out. And it's called How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. We have a chat with him. We hope you enjoy it. And uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Ryan, do you have any thoughts? We're going to go to the uh, Michael Schur quest, uh interview right now. Can I please get a warning? A warning for... Uh, fuck you. Dude, he should be in the goddamn Hall of Fame. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask... I'm going to ask Michael Schur about it. All right. Let's do it. All right, taking time out of what I imagine is a busy celebration about David Ortiz making the Hall of Fame. Uh, Michael Schur is here to talk about his new book, How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to more, to Every Moral Question. It's it's impressive that it covers every moral question in just about <laughs> 289 pages. Thank but, you. <laughs> uh, Michael, thank you so much for being here. How are you? My pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm doing great. David Ortiz is in the Hall of Fame. That's kind of more important than the book. That's all I care about. I'm happy. Everything's fine. I do appreciate, though, the the little self blurb you put out about the book. Um, I saw a video where you said that after you've read the book, you will be perfect. And if not, it's your fault. That's right. If, if you read the book and you don't become perfect, it's on you. You won't get your money back. Uh, I did what I could. That's the, that's the basic <laughs> yes. approach here. Yeah. <laughs> so, so speaking of David Ortiz and also morality, where do you stand on Barry Bonds being in the Hall of Fame? So not being in the Hall of Fame. one of the interesting and also exhausting things about writing the show, The Good Place, and then writing this book has been the realization that every single thing in your life has some ethical component to it. Like it, as soon as you, it's like, you know, when you hear a word that you've never heard before, and then suddenly you hear that word yes. everywhere, like that was me in ethics is like the second that I really started focusing on. And I was like, oh my God, every single question that comes up in our lives is, is, has some ethical component. Obviously something, even something as trivial as the baseball hall of fame there's all these questions of ethics, right? A bunch of guys cheated and to different degrees and in different ways. And there's also the question of what the league was doing, whether they, they were kind of looking the other way because they liked the fact that Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were hitting crazy numbers of home runs and the stands were packed and they were selling tickets. So now it's kind of funny that the Hall of Fame, which is just a museum of history of baseball, has not let these guys in because they're like, how dare you? You know, and it's like... Yes. It's kind of silly and, and it's, but at the same time, they cheated. Like these guys cheated. We all know they cheated. And so it's like everything else in ethics, like there's no right or wrong answer. There's no, like, there's no one is going to be a hundred percent satisfied because there are people who are overly moralistic about it. 
and say like, if you cheated the game, you shouldn't be, if you're a bad person, you shouldn't be in. And then there's people who say, how can you tell the story of baseball without Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Manny Ramirez? And I don't, you know, that I think the, the real point to make is they've never had a plan. No one has ever come in and said like, okay, here's how we're going to handle this. And yes. because of that, every year we go through the same nonsense where everybody wonders what we're supposed to do. So who would, would you vote for Barry Bonds? You personally. So I, I have a, I have a pitch, which is again, working on the theory that what is required here is that someone have a plan of some kind. So my, my plan is if you are a, a PED user or anything equivalent, it's a 10 year penalty. So instead of being eligible after five years that you retire, it's 15 years. It, so mm-hmm. you're, you're forced to wait an extra decade before you're even considered. And at that point, you would instruct the writers, don't take this into consideration. This is the this is the penalty, just like someone committing a crime, going to jail and then serving his or her time in jail. Now you're supposed to say this person is rehabilitated and we will vote on the merits of his on field actions that. So that's what I would do, which would mean in theory, I guess I would vote for bonds next year. And and this is all right. So it's this type of these type of answers that I think is what makes this book fun, because you take these complex issues and kind of break them down into the everyday discussions that we have, such as in this case, I think we're we're bordering on the, you know, can you love the art, but not Mm -hmm. the artist? Yeah. And so as far as when you when you bring up the penalty and rehabilitation there of your Hall of Fame thing, that makes me think of something that we do a lot now in society. And Ryan and I were talking about this this week because I don't know if you saw on TMZ, like the dude in the smoothie shop in Connecticut. I did. Yes. The Merrill so Lynch is, uh, employee. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that is literally down the street from where I live. Great. Which which on some level actually made me feel like, oh, is that a like I want to go into the smoothie shop and be like, I am. Hello, everyone. It is good to see you. I would like to politely purchase a smoothie. I will but, not be throwing my smoothie in anyone's face today. I simply want to order it and drink it. Yeah. But we judge so many people by our, what I assume. Now, I, I have to imagine this man wasn't walking around throwing smoothies at people regularly. Mm-hmm. We judge so many people now by the worst moments of their lives and then make that stick where there's nothing they can do to, I guess, get around that ever. Is there a moral aspect to that? Like, is there a moral aspect to forgiveness at a certain point? In your eyes? Oh, of course there is. I mean, the last chapter of the book is about saying you're sorry. And it, which I'm, which what I say is like, it's not exactly ethics, but it's part of the equation. And like ethics is essentially figuring out how to negotiate conflicts with other people. And apologizing is the thing that you're sort of required to do when you screw up, as we all do, right? Like everyone. The, the title of the book is a joke because nobody is perfect. Yes. Everybody is deeply flawed. We all make mistakes. I make mistakes constantly. We're all blowing it all the time. And I also do believe uh, firmly that most people should not be judged based on the worst thing that they ever did and that, that we should be more tolerant of flaws and of moments of failure than we are currently. And partly that's because... That moment, if that moment had happened in the year 2003, 
no one would know about that, right? Like we mm-hmm. would, no, no, no one had a camera phone. No one had, there was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. There was none of this stuff that makes all this stuff immediately visible. Now that doesn't make it any, that wouldn't have made it any better. Like it was still would have been a terrible thing to do, yes. but we now know so many of these worst moments that we all have. And so the question becomes, if you're that guy and I don't know that guy, you don't know that guy, mm. whatever. But if you're that guy, how do you handle it in the aftermath, right? What do you do? And too often, I think a couple things happen when someone has a moment of failure, when someone blows it the way that guy blew it. One thing is they don't apologize. They just, they're like, you know what? That uh, was that person screwed up my order and how dare they or whatever. And then if they do apologize sincerely, we as a society tend not to forgive them. We tend exactly. to we tend to say like, "Too bad, buddy. Exactly. You're done." And the the line of what's forgivable and what is not forgivable is an individual choice. Like we all have different tolerance levels for people's behavior. There are things where we draw a line in the sand and we say, "If you do X, Y, and Z, you are no longer part of our my society. I don't want anything to do with you." And I think that's good. There should be standards for the way that we treat each other. And if you violate some of those more extreme standards, goodbye forever. You don't get to hang out anymore. You don't get to be part of the conversation. And then there are other things. And I, again, I don't know whether this guy's behavior falls into this category or not, but there should be some things where when people screw up, we look inward and we say, all right, well, I'm, I've had moments of anger like that. I've had moments of frustration. I've done stupid stuff. I'm going to be a little more tolerant maybe of people's worst moments. Um, And again, I'm not saying this applies to that guy because that guy didn't seem like a great dude. Yeah. And and the thing that he did was pretty rough. I'm just saying in general, the way that we approach these moments of failure of, of societal failure need to be reexamined a little bit. I I feel like sometimes that, that people don't want to fully examine a situation that they don't want to fully say how bad a situation was because they're scared that it's going to pass that moral judgment on the person that they want to, they want to just forgive them. Like, ah, come on. He he really didn't mean it, but, but, but it takes away from how bad an action was. Yes. That's a problem too, right? Being too forgiving of bad behavior is also not right. And not being forgiving enough. (laughs) I'm always just like, I mean, maybe like I, I, I look at every situation somehow I end up explaining it. Like I'm their mother. Where I'm just like, you know, we could have been having a really rough day. I don't know the racism. That was definitely bad. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. you know, yeah, maybe it's OK. Like he was he's probably sorry. I mean, I don't think that that's a bad way to approach it. Like, I think that approaching it from a standpoint of empathy as the beginning place is good because, again, we're none of us is perfect. We've all done things that if everyone in the world had a camera phone for our whole lives, like our our five worst moments are rough, like whatever they are, they're rough. Now, would they involve that kind of racism? Probably not. In many cases, would they involve that level of, of anger and virulence? Maybe not. So maybe you look at that guy's behavior and you think, yeah, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable behavior. And even if he apologizes, if he apologizes, we'll say thank you for apologizing. But also, I still don't want to hang out with you or let you be mm-hmm. a part of my society. That's possible. It's just, I'm just saying that that approach, the approach you're talking about, where you start from a place of like, well, we don't know the whole story here. We don't know what we let's, let's lead with empathy. And then if we determine after leading with empathy, that the person just is a jerk and was a racist and, and blew it like that. And you want to say like, you're drummed out of my personal little society. Okay. But 
the the starting point I think should be the recognition that we're all flawed people and that we all screw up all the time. We're talking with uh, Michael Schur, author of How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to more, Every Moral Question. And I did a particularly bad job of setting him up in the first place because he's also worked on a ton of television that I know Ryan wants to talk about. In fact, his whole family has been responsible for for so much television that I've enjoyed. I, I know your your wife was involved with the OC and, and obviously mm-hmm. your father in law, Regis Philbin who when he used to come to Sirius XM, my last name is Zito. It's a very yellable last name. He would love it. He would just, just it was quick and short and just yep. love to be repeated. So that was always fun. But uh, Ryan, I know you had some questions about uh, Michael's television writing. Well, it's just you've you've had it, it seems like the full spectrum of a career where you've started as a writer and now you are the uh, for probably a term you don't like executive in some ways. But I, I just <laughs> I guess sort of like, you know, did you see that kind of a move coming? Was it something you always wanted to do or was it accidental? Well, that's sort of the natural way of progression in in writing as you start off as like a staff writer. I started at Saturday Night Live and I moved to L.A. and got a job on The Office, which at the time nobody thought was going to succeed. And it was only because Greg Daniels, who adapted it as a sort of a crazy genius that he made it work. And then the natural sort of progression is you work your way up the ladder, you become a sort of senior level writer, and then you take your shot at creating your own show. So the first show I created I created with Greg, it was Parks and Recreation. And that show, you know, almost got canceled a thousand times and then managed to kind of hang on. And then that opportunity led me and my friend Dan Gore to create Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And that show stuck around for eight years. And so you just sort of, if if things go your way, if you're a combination of hardworking and lucky, which I was, you get more and more shots to create more and more things. And like, they don't always work. I've certainly been a part of many projects and pilots that failed, didn't go anywhere. That's sort of the nature of the beast. But it, it is, you get, the more success you have, the more opportunities you have to try other things. And so at this point in my life, I, you know, I have the opportunity to try a bunch of stuff, which is really great. Something I heard you uh, sort of talk about was planning a show and budgeting a show and sort of the expectations of who you're delivering the show to. And I think we sort of think that in television, you have unlimited budgets. You can just go do like, oh, I have an idea. I'm just going to go do this. And you don't deal with the same bureaucratic, are we going to be able to pay for this stuff that we would in an office type setting? And I, hearing you talk about it, getting through some of those obstacles to get your shows created, it, it sort of like opened up a door for me that I didn't even realize was there in your Oh yeah, no, it's all bureaucracy. It's all it's all negotiation, and and you're constantly fighting for budgetary stuff. You're cut, you know, you want to shoot in a particular place, you don't have the money. All right, well, let's cut some of the budget here from this division and reallocate it over here. Like, you know, the TV is very expensive. You know, half hours cost three or four million dollars a piece. Hour longs can cost five, six, seven million dollars a piece. Some of the really expensive shows that are on TV, like The Crown or um, or you know, shows like that, they can be 15 or 20 million dollars per hour. Like they're all, it's basically every one of them is a movie that has a 20 million dollar budget. So, you know, it depends, it obviously depends on what what the show is, where it's being made, what the budget is that you've negotiated. But no matter what it is, I guarantee you, even on something like The Crown that has an enormous budget, they're constantly having to think like, well, we can't afford that. We can't, you know, we're shooting at Buckingham Palace tomorrow and that's going to cost us a lot of money. So we don't have the money for this actor or whatever. So 
you know, it's like anything else. It's you're, when you're running a show, you're basically running a business. You're running a small business. You have a budget, you have assets that you can allocate in different ways. And you're constantly trying to figure out with other people who work on the show, like how to spend that money. What's the most effective way to spend that money, all that stuff. It's no different from any other business. So let me ask you this. And this is a little bit like uh, when I when I asked my pediatrician if I was putting my baby in the car seat correctly, it was a little about she she was a little overtrained for the question. But I uh, when you're an executive producer on a show, mm-hmm. how is that? How does that differ from a show where you have created it? Like, what are the differences in the jobs that because because people I see these things on the screen and as somebody sure. who works in radio, I get it. But I'm not as familiar with the television industry. So. What does that mean? It can mean a lot of different things. Like if you create a show, generally speaking, you are also credited as an executive producer of that show. And there will be there will be a few of them, right? It's you. And maybe if you have a producing partner, that person is an executive producer or whatever. So it could mean that you created it, that this is your thing and you're at the top of the food chain. There are other situations in which you didn't create the show, but somebody came to you and said, hey, I have an idea for a show and I've never done this before. And could you help me? And you sort of help them, you walk, you go around with them, you help them sell it and you help steer it and you give a sort of big picture notes on the scripts and kind of act as like a senior advisor. That could also lead to you getting an executive producer credit. There are other times where like if if you wrote a book and someone said, hey, I want to adapt your book into a TV show or a movie, you might say, okay, great. I want to be credited as an executive producer on the show, even though I don't have anything to do with it at all. And you might win that in a contract negotiation. So it can it can mean anything from I literally never set foot on the on the set and have nothing to do with this, but I'm getting paid all the way to this was my idea and I'm the one in charge. So it just depends project by project. Okay, all right. Uh, Back to the book for a second. I noticed there's an incredible amount of uh, well-known people with awesome blurbs on it. You obviously know a lot of people from a very successful career. How does the decision get made who you're going to ask to blurb the book? And do people who blurb the book, is it? do you know if they've read the entire thing or not? <laughs> well, uh, I don't. And in some cases, like Ted Danson and Kristen Bell, who were on The Good Place, I'm guessing they didn't read the whole book because they lived the lessons of the book in a show for four years. But I I honestly don't know. I I sent the book to a bunch of people. You know, the the trick of these things is you want people who you want people who go into a bookstore and flip it over and look at the blurbs to think like, oh, I if these people liked it, then that probably means I will like it. And in this case, I'm taking these kind of big, complicated philosophical ideas and trying to talk about them in a funny and, and conversational way. So the people I asked were a combination of very impressive and serious academic types and also just funny people like Amy Poehler, who is like has a reputation for being a smart and interesting and funny person. So, I, you know, I, I asked a bunch of my friends and they were very graciously uh, agreed to do it. And I, I think the messages that the group of them sends hopefully will will receive will be received by the right people, meaning I want to learn something, but also I want this to be funny. I've started looking at it like it's a festival lineup where I'm like, all right, this one's on the front. This one's on the side cover. considered to be uh, <laughs> something I, I really appreciated uh, about The Good Place. And I think you get to it in this book is is 
as a society, we're very individualistic. I guess mm-hmm. you want to say it's sort of like we look at our own decisions and we stay in our own boxes and you know we think about whether we've done right or wrong for ourselves. But something like a theme in the good place is sort of the downstream effects of everything you do. Like mm-hmm. it might be 10 people down from you and you don't even know what it is, but you, you know, you left that pile of trash or you left a, you know, a, a piece of trash somewhere, it's going to affect somebody else somewhere down the road. And that's that's something I don't think we think enough about that both the good place and I know you get to in this book as well. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, America as a country was founded on the ideals of individualistic achievement. Like that's the thing we're obsessed with in this country. We celebrate and we deify individuals who are billionaires and who have like achieved all these incredible things. Like that's just, that's what we like. We like the rugged, you know, guy on a, on horseback by himself out in the West somewhere, like herding cattle. Like that's always been the image that Americans have gravitated towards. And the problem with that, I mean, it it leads to incredible people, right? It leads to these, it leads to Bill Gates and it leads to Warren Buffett and it leads to Tom Brady and at least anybody else um, who, who is an individual of very high achievement that we can celebrate, but what it, what it sort of hides or masks in some way is the fact that for most of us, we have to rely on other people for happiness to some degree in, in big and small ways. We have to be part of a society that, that is cooperative and not everybody is Tom Brady or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. Like for most of us, where our our sense of daily security and safety and happiness and health and well-being relies on the people we work with and the people who live next door to us and the people we go to church with and the people that work that are milling around the same store that we're milling around because if those people act selfishly and cruelly and only in their own interests that's going to affect us and make our our lives worse and I think what I'm ultimately trying to do is get people to say like, hey, if we were all a little bit more other directed, if we all started from a place of like, hey, my actions affect everybody else. So I'm going to really make sure that I'm trying to do the right thing. It would just have a a ripple effect that I think would be very positive. I'm actively trying to not bring up the pandemic. I know that's the natural, (laughs) the natural, like every I've I've watched some of the the appearances you've done for the book and some of the things you've said. And it's like, yes, every example of the pandemic would fit perfectly into how people just can't seem to do this. Uh, My question for you now, though, is, you know, you've obviously done a lot of research on morality and all that. Is there anything you still do that you consider to be immoral or have you exercised all that from your personal behavior? No, of course there is. I mean, any number I I I'm very. wary of the idea that anybody would think that I am positioning myself as an actual moral arbiter. Like I tried to make the title of the book as jokey as possible. And anytime I talk about it, I'm sure to say, and I write about it at the beginning, like this is not a book that is intended to make you feel bad about all the stupid stuff that you do. It's also not in any way intended to suggest that I have never done anything stupid in my life because I certainly have. And I continue to nearly every day. Like we're all, but that's why it's important to learn about this stuff is because you're going to blow it constantly. Like every day you're going to blow it. Like I, I'm look, I'm a vegetarian. I threw a smoothie at a teen the other day. <laughs> See, right there. See, that would be a thing you could improve on. Yes. But I, I, I'm a vegetarian. I stopped eating meat like a decade ago. I drive an electric car. I like, I do a lot of things and I, because I've made a lot of choices in my life that are intended to try to be a little bit better. 
that I was, you know, before, but I'm also constantly making choice. I'm constantly, I buy things from Amazon all the time. I am aware of the effect that Amazon is having on mom and pop businesses all over the country. I'm aware that Jeff Bezos is a little bit of a weirdo and a lunatic and has, you know, he's pledged $10 billion to fight climate change. No one even knows what he means. Like, what do you, what are you talking <laughs> they about? They have an you... arena though. There's an arena. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I, I buy, I support, look, you're wearing a New England Patriots hat. I'm a huge New England Patriots fan. Mm-hmm. If you were a truly ethical person, That's you would probably not be a New England Patriots fan. Like, of course, they you're, you're, there's this, it is unavoidable. There is no way to avoid any kind of ethical conflict in your life. It's everywhere you turn. And so the question isn't, can you be perfect? The question is, can you maybe be a little bit better today than you were yesterday? That's what the show is about. And that's what this book is about. So I have to ask you now, is there any chance fire Joe Morgan is ever going to return? <laughs> For those of you who don't know. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was going to, I was going <laughs> to <Yeah>. say fire, <laughs> fire Joe Morgan is, was a website where uh, Michael wrote under the name Ken Tremendous, which is where you can still follow him on Twitter. And it is one of my favorite websites ever. And I almost feel that like because I was younger then mm. when it was I, I sort of missed like I wish that 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 site existed now. It was fantastic. Yeah. The point of that site was to write about what we saw. It wasn't just me. It was me and a couple of my friends. And we wrote about bad sports writing and people who had bad takes in sports. And we would Fisk is the word that people use. We would mm-hmm. fisk those articles by just reprinting them and going line by line and then making jokes and deriding the stupidity that we saw. And, um, you know, we stopped it uh, before Parks and Rec started because we I, I hired Alan Yang to be on on Parks and Rec with me. And he and I and my friend Dave King were basically the main contributors to that site. And I was like, I know how much work this is going to be to start this new show. It's like it is kind of unethical of me to <laughs> to be spending this much time on something else when I've been entrusted with this TV show. So we shut it down. We also shut it down in part because the stuff we were talking about was starting to change. Like, you know, there in that time period from call it 2003 to 2008, like a lot of the ways that people talked about sports began to change. People began to value the things that we valued and began to take a sort of money ball approach mm-hmm. to baseball analysis specifically in a way they hadn't before. So we kind of felt like we were repeating ourselves. We were making the point, same points over and over again. And we just said, all right, it's goodbye. We're going to leave now. So I don't know what it would be like if it came out now, because the, the same kinds of articles are very rarely written. Like it, the world has gotten a lot smarter in the way that it talks about sports and baseball in particular. Do you think Tom Brady is going to retire? <laughs> Uh, I think it's more of a question now than it ever has been. Like I, this feels like the first year where it was really yeah. possible. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know offhand what their salary cap situation is. I don't know who's it's coming not back and it's not, not yet. great. <laughs> well, that's why people say Rogers is going to retire, right? They're 45 yeah. million over the cap or something. And they, and Devonte Adams is gone and all these people are gone. So I, I don't know I, if I were, he, I would, Like, I I mean, what else? He's won seven Super Bowls. Like he's been in 10. He's got every record. He now has the yardage record. He has the completions record. He has the he has every postseason record and will have every postseason record for as long as there's football. No one will come close. I mean, he's he's doubled up everybody in terms of postseason wins and Super Bowls and everything else. So I don't know what's left. If I were he and he's a little younger, wildly, he's only like a year younger than I am, which is amazing that he's still playing at this level. But I don't know. I think I would leave. But I, but you cannot possibly 
access the mind of a competition monster like Tom Brady. You just don't know what's in his brain. Like he's driven by something very different than what I'm driven by. So Ryan, Ryan, for lack of a better term, shits on me because when I'm not watching the Patriots, I do root for the Buccaneers as long as they're not playing the Patriots. It's like, well, how could I not? I've dedicated so much of my life to these two dudes that are sure. down there now. Do you do you do that as well? I have found I certainly was rooting for him in the Super Bowl, no question. Yes. Um, and and I in a in a neutral game where I don't care, I will root for him over whoever he's playing. Like I right. but I have this other rule that I follow pretty religiously in sports, which is if my team is not in it, I root for the team with the most tortured fan base because I was yeah. a Red Sox fan mm -hmm. and the feeling of happiness and catharsis that I had in 2004 was so glorious and wonderful and has basically, I still feel it. Like it's kept me buoyant for almost 20 years now. So I root for the most tortured fan base. I was rooting for the bills over the chiefs. I will root for the Bengals over the chiefs in the, in the championship game on Sunday. I always want a team that hasn't won it in a long time to win. I was super happy for the Cubs when they won. I was happy for the White Sox when they won in 2005. Like I always want people to be who haven't experienced happiness in a long time to experience the joy of their of their team winning. All right. I like that. I, I, I've I said it a million times, but last year I really felt like I ended up with the shitty parent in the divorce, like watching the whole, <laughs> the whole Tampa Bay thing, just being like on the other side of the street, just being like, oh, man. But uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. The book How to Be Perfect, the correct answer to every moral question is available now. Michael Schur, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.